Okay. Good evening. So, uh, first off, my apologies for a, a later than usual start here this evening. Uh, uh, sorry, and I know it's uh, it's uh, it's later than late. Um, first thing, actually, I so I have two uh, uh, two sort of uh, orders of business before we start tonight's discussion, which I am super excited about. Um, Boy, the two chapters we're doing tonight. How awesome is that, right? We get the first version of the Bridge of Khazad Doom and the first version of the Cracks of Doom in one night. I mean, come on. This is amazing. So uh, we're going to get to that soon. Uh, two quick orders of business before that. First, um, actually involves the start time, ironically. So uh starting I, <laughs> I was gonna say starting next week but it looks like pretty much functionally starting this week as well um i'm gonna need to i'm gonna need to adjust the start time uh uh back by half an hour it's gonna be this is gonna be the start time pretty much uh uh from now on i think i've had a, a an evening thing that's come up that I, I don't think i'm gonna be able to reliably get home in time so i think if we just plan that i that i'll start at 10 uh eastern time it's gonna be um, it's going to be better. I know, Jana, I know it doesn't make things easier over in Europe, <laughs> but I know I'm sorry about that. But it's just, it's it's going to be, I, realistically, I could try to uh, start at 9.30, but I, I'm going to be tied up in things, and I expect it's going to be until closer to 10. So from now on, we'll just, I'm going to make that official adjustment um, so that things will be... Um, a little bit clearer and more predictable, I think. So starting next week, uh, we're going to be at 10 p.m. instead of uh, 9.30 p.m. The second thing, and this is not a, an immediate shift kind of thing, but this is a, a, a sort of a longer-term issue. I want to make a nomenclature shift. We've been calling this series, the Mythgard Academy, uh, for a long time now. It's been four years now that we've been running this. Um, but I want to change the name um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it's a little bit misleading and, and stuff, but I want to I I retitle this. Um, I want to stop calling this series the Mythgard Academy, and I want to call it something else. Um, so I, want to, um, I wanted to see what you guys thought about that. I wanted to give you the sort of option... Uh, and to, to, to make some suggestions. What do you think would be a good name uh, for this series? I'm not, I'm not looking to change anything about it. Uh, you know, we're going to keep doing the same thing that we're doing. We're going to be, uh, uh, we're going to be, um, you know, this, all the same functions, be studying the same books. You guys will be voting to determine the next, uh, uh, the next thing. Uh, so I'm going to be, yeah. <laughs> see Kate, it's, it's almost exactly like Turin wanting to choose a new name. Not quite exactly the same, but kind of like that. Um, uh, yeah, Tony, I am thinking about keeping Mythgard in the title, but I just, it's the word Academy that I don't, that I think is misleading. And, and, uh, the reason I called it that originally four years ago was, well, it's a whole series of like interesting historical accidents. Um, but as things have developed over the last four years, it's just not really appropriate, and I think it's totally unnecessarily uh, confuses a bunch of different things. Um, so, I uh, just wanted to make a, a book club or book seminars people are thinking of. Um, that's, uh, uh, that's certainly just, yeah, book club is descriptive, right? That would certainly work, the Mythgard Book Club. Um, okay, well, just, if you have suggestions... 
send me an email, make your suggestions. Uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, um, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, uh, Julie is fond of seminars, right? Book seminars. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Interested to hear ideas. Just kind of wanted to, wanted to float that idea out there and see if people had, uh, had any interesting, uh, uh, suggestions, but anyway. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Let me know if you have any ideas or any strong feelings, uh, about that as we, uh, um, as we move forward. But anyway, okay. Um, I said, it's not nothing, nothing official, just something that I'm kind of thinking about and wanted to, wanted to, to, to think what you're, uh, think what you're thinking about that. Um, all right, let's talk about, uh, Treason of Isengard here this evening. So, um, let's see. Okay. We're going to go right into Moria. So we had uh, a couple slides from the end of last time, uh, from when we're um, uh, uh, when we're entering into Moria. So we're kind of backed up a little bit uh, into the end of the revisions of last time. Um, but these are some some new stuff that we got uh, about uh, Moria and how Moria was being conceived. Um, okay, so just a few passages that I had from there. Um, and this one on the sort of on this first one on the subject of you know him kind of reimagining Moria, which uh, uh, which we didn't moments that I thought were interesting there. They were not nasty holes, and even now they are, and even now they are not so, unless others than dwarves here made them so. This is Gimli, of course, being defensive uh, about uh, Moria, about the nasty holes. Um, how would you have passed through and breathed and lived if it were not for the skill of the builders long ago? Through many shafts, I doubt, though many shafts, I doubt not, are blocked and broken with the years, the air still flows and is for the most part good, and of old the halls and mines were not darksome. Christopher notes here the text breaks off, all of Gimli's speech being struck through and replaced by his words in the Fellowship of the Ring. These are not holes. This is the great realm and city of the Dwarodelf. And of old it was not darksome, but full of light and splendor. As I will sing you a song, changed to as is still remembered in our songs. There is an isolated draft for this rejected speech of Gimli's in which it is completed, and of old they were not darksome. They were lit with many lights and sparkled with polished metals and gems. Um... What interests me about this is sort of, you know, again, as always, whenever we can see these passages that Tolkien goes back and fixes right away, and in some ways, moments like this are are the more conspicuous, right? In that the uh, uh, the changing of uh, of the passage, you know, the, the immediate thing that he revises back to is the published text, right? Is the thing that we're most familiar with. So it, it can be easy to kind of let things like this slip by to be like, oh, you know, okay, right. So he, he briefly said it differently and then changed it to the way that we, you know, are familiar with what he said. Um, but I love moments like that because it gives us a little glimpse of like, so what was his, what was his first impulse? How was he envisioning Gimli's, what was his first when he was thinking, like, how is Gimli going to respond in this? What was Gimli's first response? Um, his second response, of course, is more familiar. What he emphasizes is, you have a total misunderstanding of what, you know, these are not holes, right? This is the great Roman city of the Dwarodelf. Published text, right? And in other words, what you are mistaking for caves, you know, for dark caves, 
is really a vast realm that you are totally not appreciating, right? But that's not Gimli's first response. His first response is, these were not nasty holes. That is, it's the nastiness of them that he objects to. He doesn't say, dude, little hobbit, you're missing the point. This is a, a, this is a vast realm. He's like, they're not nasty. The only, na- only thing nasty about them is what has been done to them. Right. And in fact, the, 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 the only extent to which they're not nasty uh, is due to the amazing craftsmanship uh, of the dwarves of old. Right. So in other words, it wasn't initially him being defensive about the grandeur and the scope of the city. Right. Of the buildings of Moria. Um, it's about a if it has declined from its glory of old, it's not the dwarves' fault, right? It's the fault of those who have done bad things to it. But again, what he emphasizes is the ventilation. Now, again, I think that the, the change is an improvement, right? That's better <clears throat> uh, by Gimli. I'd rather have Gimli say, this is the great Roman city of the Dwarodelf. Um, but it was particularly interesting to me that that was his response. And, and here's the main reason why I find that especially interesting. His talking about the ventilation and stuff. That isn't something that was a given with the dwarves. You know, if you've been with us all along, you remember his discussion of the dwarves. When dwarves first entered into the narrative of the Quintus Silmarillion, they were not originally the great smiths and craftsmen. They were originally merchants, first and foremost, who, uh, you know, remember that line in The Hobbit of them having a... um, a very, uh, 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 oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the exact phrasing. Um, you know, a very, uh, a very, a, a very, you know, high notion of the value of money. It's not the phrasing. I'm getting the phrasing wrong. But um, that concept, you know, when, when, uh, uh, when the narrator of The Hobbit tells us that dwarves are not heroes, right, but calculating folk with a, uh, w- with a high opinion of the, of the value of money, um, they are, uh, that's, that's the, that's the old, that's, that's sort of a remnant or a recollection of the original conception of dwarves, where they were explicitly, uh, we were explicitly told they didn't make beautiful things. They weren't excellent craftsmen. Um, they were mostly traders. And it was because they were mostly interested in making a buck that they didn't really spend time on their craftsmanship. That has changed over time. We've already seen that change over the course of the, um, uh, over the course of the Silmarillion tradition, um, you know, already to this point. So we've seen the dwarves grow, um, but of course the place where the dwarves have grown most notably, of course, is in The Hobbit itself. Thorin Oakenshield and company did more uh, to sort of move the dwarves along uh, in the conception of Tolkien's world than any other, than anything that happened in the published Silmarillion. And... Uh, and so in that same spirit, we can see uh, the same thing. You know, we can't take for granted the dwarves, you know, Gimli and the dwarves. This is just one of the areas where you can't assume, not only can you not assume the story as Tolkien is going to eventually develop it, like with Boromir, right? You can't assume the whole history of Gondor and the future of Gondor, right? I mean, as we've seen, the Gondor, or the Andor story is 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 very different and very much more limited to this point, especially uh, in its relationship with the Dúnedain, as we've seen. But it's not just that. It's the whole nature and identity of the dwarves themselves that we can't necessarily assume, um, and that isn't necessarily going to be the one that we 
the one that we think it is. Um, and it's one of the interesting experiments that I was urging when we were looking at um, the, like the 1930 Quenta, the Quenta Older Inwa, back in volume four, The Shaping of Middle Earth. Um, that's the one that was written at the same time as The Hobbit. And it's really, really fascinating to go back and read The Hobbit carefully, to read that the dwarf stuff uh, in the 1930 Quentin Older Inwa, and then with that in mind, go back and read The Hobbit um, and try to kind of clear your mind of the assumptions you make coming to The Hobbit from The Lord of the Rings, right? Having Gimli, son of Glowin, in your head when you meet Thorin Oakenshield and company in chapter one of The Hobbit. If you can do that, if you can think from the perspective of the 1930 Quenta, in Instead of from the perspective of the Lord of the Rings, a lot of the things that happen in The Hobbit end up sounding kind of different, and you can see the development in a really new way. Um, so, uh, I mean, Kate, it's certainly true that the further we get, uh, you know, uh, the the further this gets from being the new Hobbit, the more each character begins to take on a more extensive history. That's certainly true, and it's true in an even more profound way with Gimli, because again, it's not just him personally, it's his whole, the whole concept of his race is changing in ways like hobbits are already, you know, hobbits are pretty stable, right? Um, we know what hobbits are. The elves are relatively stable. We know what, it, we know what the elves are, right? Um, sometimes we misjudge what the elves are, you know, that is to say, we underestimate their tra la la laliness, right, sometimes, but, but still, like, in general, we know what the elves are, but the dwarves have been legitimately changing, uh, and that's, uh, that's really kind of interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Thank you, Tony. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. I was beating around the bush there, but yes, thank you. Thank you for uh, relieving my mind with the uh, direct quotation there. Um, yeah, okay. All right. Um, so let's... Um, uh, let's and it's, for me that was the interesting thing here um is that seeing that initial response by gimli and the fact that his initial impulse was for gimli to be defensive specifically about the 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 architecture about the technical skill of his forebears right don't call these places aren't nasty holes because of any fault in dwarven craftsmanship Right. In fact, it's the dwarven craftsmanship that is the one thing that keeps this place from being a nasty hole. Right. That's why that, to me, was such a fascinating response by Gimli. Okay, um, we get the Durin song, the first draft of the Durin song. Um, so let's uh, let's look at what we see here. The world was young, the mountains green, no mark upon the moon was seen when Durin came and gave their name to lands where none before had been, or to lands to name to uh, where nameless lands had been. I'm not sure exactly how that was supposed to be revised. Um, he was throwing around a different wording there. The world was fair, the mountains tall, with gold and silver gleamed his hall when Durin's throne of carven stone yet stood behind the guarded wall. The world is dark, the mountains old, in shadow lies the heaped gold, in Durin's halls no hammer falls, the forge's fires are grey and cold. Am among many other half-formed lines or couplets are, When Durin woke and gave to gold its first and secret name of old, or and, When Durin came to Azanul and found and named the nameless pool. Okay. 
lots of really fun stuff that we can see going on here. Now, first, what do you notice about the shape of this poem? Did you hear the sound of it? It doesn't sound the same as Gimli's finished poem does. So let's not focus on the concepts first. First, the shape. Did you hear it? What does it sound like? I won't do the first one, because when you start with the world as young, it's easier to remember the old one. The world was fair, the mountains tall, with gold and silver gleamed his hall, when Durin's throne of carven stone yet stood behind the guarded wall. Stephen, you've got it exactly. Stephen Cover, absolutely. It is exactly the same structure as the dwarf song in The Hobbit. So originally, his original impulse is to have Gimli sing a song which is in the exact meter and rhyme scheme of We Must Away, Air Break of Day. Right? Notice the characteristics. The A, the a rhyme, is so four line stanzas with the A rhyme in one, two, and four, <clears throat> with line three having just that internal rhyme. When Durin's throne of carven stone. Right, far over the misty mountains, uh, old to dungeon. Uh, far over the misty mountains, cold to dungeons deep and caverns old. We must away ere break of day to seek our pale enchanted gold. Right, that's the structure of the dwarf poem in the Hobbit, um, and uh, it's the same structure that the dwarves use in the wind poem that they sing in Bjorn's house. Um, and this is this, and so Tolkien's first impulse is to have Gimli sing a new song using exactly the same structure and meter. Um, good, yeah, Margaret Joyce was noticing that too. Um, uh, <laughs> Stephen says so. Originally, dwarves came up with one song and used it for everything. Well, no, but it's fairly characteristic, actually. You know, it's uh, uh, the idea that there would be this one sort of model, right? This one sort of shape. Um, that they would be using is not at all unusual, um, uh, you know, for there to be a kind of not exactly standardized exactly. And I, I wouldn't be the right the word I would use, but um, uh, but yeah, exactly, Tony. It's it's dwarf meter the way that hobbits have a meter and the way that elves have a meter. I mean, there there are some pretty stable patterns um, that uh, that many of the, the the different kinds of of songs and verses that we hear in the Lord of the Rings falls into. Um, uh, exactly, Kimber. It's more of a characteristic meter than saying like they're singing the same song because it's not the same song. It's about a totally different thing, right? Um, so that's really neat. I really like that. But so. It's interesting to me that he moves away from that, right? Um, in so so that he revised that away is to me a very um, uh, a very conspicuous choice, right? I mean that that's that's a, a very deliberate departure. Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave behind the old dwarf meter. I'm not gonna make it sound anymore, just like that poem. Um, I'm going to give it a different a different sound. Um, really interesting that he would do that. Okay, now let's look at the actual content here. What's different about this song? What do you notice comparing this song to uh, to the published text uh, to the to Gimli's song as we know it from the Lord of the Rings? Um, what's different? What did you notice? Arthur says it gets dark and sad faster. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, we get less of it, right? So uh, it's a little hard to judge the pace of it that way because, you know, maybe, uh, you know, there might have been more, right? Um, but um, um, what is the world was young, the mountains green, no mark upon the moon was seen when Durin came and gave their name to lands where none before had been. The world was fair, the mountains tall, with gold and silver gleamed his hall, when Durin's throne of carven stone yet stood behind the guarded wall. The world is dark, the mountains old, in shadow lies the heaped gold, in Durin's halls no hammer falls, the forge's fires are grey and old. I agree, Arthur, that that overall structure, I mean, doing that in three stanzas, right? Durin's awakening in the elder days, right, when all was new and things are nameless, right, the 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 that that thing about the nameless lands right uh, with the which concept is there without his use of the word nameless right is already there in the first stanza and then the second stanza to talk about the glory of his realm and the third stanza to say um, it's gone that overall shape is the shape of the published poem right it's just much more contracted right um, Tony good no mention of the elves right. Good, I agree. The, the 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 published version contextualizes it more, right? This is, and I would, um, I would expand that a little bit, Tony, to say, um, uh, I, I would expand that to say it contextualizes it less, right? Um, this is one of the things that. Gimli's published song does is not just talk about Durin and Durin's halls, but to contextualize it, right? In the historical, you know, to place it historically, uh, you know, next to the other, you know, to, to the, you know, we, we get the, you know, uh, the references to Nargothrond and Gondolin um, uh, and all that stuff. So, um, uh, yeah. Um, Kate, I too like that. Kate really likes the, the sort of the neatness of Durin's name coming in the same place each time, right? Coming in right there. Second word, third line of every stanza, right? So the beginning of the, especially since that line, Kate is the one that sticks out, right? It's the one with the internal rhyme structure. So, uh, from a, from a, from a rhyme scheme standpoint, that's the sort of the highlighted line, right? And that, that line is always the line about Durin in each stanza. It's pretty cool. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, exactly. Uh, this poem doesn't really set this in a particular time in the world. It's kind of talking about Durin and Moria in a vacuum to some extent. Now, again, it's hard. I get this is sort of sketchy, right? As I said originally, uh, in response to Arthur's comment, we don't really have the, this isn't like the full workings necessarily. So, you know, we don't really know for sure that this reflects the full vision of what he was going for. And, you know, in this first go through on the poem. Um, but, but it does seem to me to, to be a little bit more kind of narrowly focused, um, uh, and not really, placing the emphasis, as I think that Gimli's published song does, on not just the sort of isolated glory of what Durin did and the importance in-house, right, but of his stature and significance in the world as a whole. Um, 
similarly, um, when the when it gets expanded in the published version, we get that stanza, you know, um, he named the nameless hills and dells, he drank from yet untasted wells, he stood and looked in mirror mirror and saw a crown of stars appear. Um, he named the nameless hills and dells, I really like. Now, we get a version of that, right? Um, you know, uh, when Durin came and gave their name to lands where none before had been, right? Um, but there's something a little bit more primeval about naming the nameless hills and dells, right? Uh, and that line about he drank from yet untasted wells has always been one of my favorite lines in that whole song. Um, uh, I have always found that that, um, uh, that, that is extremely, I find that very, very mythic. Uh, if I had to point to like the mythic power of that, uh, of that poem of, of, of Gimli's Moria song, that would be one of my lines that I would want to talk about most. He drank from yet untasted wells. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, Brandon, I do like him giving gold its first and secret name. That is pretty cool. I actually kind of uh, miss that line uh, from the published text. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, there is... Uh, Lynn, I think that that's, that's a really good point. Uh, um, Lynn says, in sort of the bigger picture, um, this poem seems to be really a poem about Durin himself and what he did. Uh, and of course, in the end, we have uh, uh, Endurance Halls, No Hammer Falls, right? Um, which is it's not just about Durin, but, um, you know, Cade, in a sense, this kind of comes back to the placement of Durin through there, like the way that Durin is really the center of all of those stanzas. Um, and Lynn's point is that in the revised version, the revised version is much more about Durin's folk in general rather than just about Durin, right? It's more about... Uh, uh, in Moria, in Khazad-dûm, right? Uh, Khazad-dûm itself, bigger picture, right, is really the focus of the latter, um, of the latter poem. And whereas this is really just, not just, but this is really about, primarily about Durin. Um, and I do think that that's a really significant difference there too. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna shuffle along. Um, Notice we still, we have him finding and naming the nameless pool. That's, uh, I love the fact that his naming unnamed things is something that he keeps coming back to as, as of really central importance. Um, and of course, with the emphasis on Mirror Mirror there. All right. Uh, last one from, uh, uh, still from previous chapters. This text begins with various forms of Gandalf's reply to Sam's question, are there piles of jewels and gold lying about here then? Several answers to this question were tried. In one, Gandalf said, There may be, for the wealth of Durin was very great, not only in such things as were found in the mines themselves. There was a great, a great traffic to his gates from east and west. In another, he said, No, the dwarves carried much away, and though the dread of its dark mages, mazes has protected Moria from men and elves, it has not defended it from the goblins, who have often invaded it and plundered it. Against these, my father wrote, Mithril is now nearly all lost. Orcs plunder it and pay tribute to Sauron, who is collecting it. We don't know why, for some secret purpose of his... of his. 
Weapons Not for Beauty. The final version here, written in a rapid scrawl with penciled additions and alterations, is as follows. No one knows, said Gandalf. None have dared to seek for the armories and treasure chambers down in the deep places since the dwarves fled, unless it be plundering orcs. It is said that they, that they were laid under spells and curses when the dwarves fled. They were, said Gimli, but orcs have plundered often inside Moria nonetheless. All right, several things that I find really, really fascinating about this. Again, thinking about his continuing to develop concept of dwarves, right? And also thinking about the concept of Moria itself and what does it mean? What? It, what where, where are they, right? Uh, you know, are these nasty holes that they're walking through or, 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 or what about it? And you can see um, the... Uh, the varieties of the answer to that question, right? Sam's fairly simple question. Are there piles of jewels and gold lying about here, right? Uh, and his answers, right? Yes. No. No one knows, <laughs> right? You can see. And that's, that's a, it's really fun to see that because you can see how uh, fluid the idea is in Tolkien's mind at this point, right? And of course, in the final published text, he's not only going to, he's not going to just say no, He's going to say, you know, he's, he's going to say no. He's like, you're not thinking what you're saying, right? He's going he's gonna to sort of heap scorn upon the idea that there are piles of jewels and gold lying about here still, right? Um, but originally, that wasn't the impulse. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, Stephen wonders if this will turn into a treasure hunt story. It, 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 you can't rule that out, right? Um, but... So let's look at the implications of all three things, right? So when the answer is yes, or possibly, or probably, right? There may be. For the wealth of Durin was very great. Um, so the first impulse is to emphasize how great the wealth of Moria is. So are there piles of jewels and gold still? Hey, yeah, I can't rule it out, right? Probably are. There was so much you know, gold and treasure lying around here that there's bound to be some piles in odd corners still, right? Um, so you can see Tolkien's first impulse seems to be, I want to emphasize how rich and how wealthy, how splendid, right, the ancient kingdom of Khazad-dûm was. So that's interesting, right, to see that first impulse. But then he comes back and he's like, nah, nah, no, because, you know, the, plund- the the goblins would have plundered it. So realistically, there's not going to be piles of jewels and gold sitting around. So, you know, I think we're going to have to say that despite the fact that it, you know, he wants to emphasize how incredibly bounteous was the wealth, but but realistically, it's not going to be still sitting around because the goblins have had an opportunity to invade and plunder it. But then he shifts that to, well, hang on. No one knows for sure, right? On the one hand... Yes, there's been a lot of plundering, but there's this other factor, right? Yeah, the or the orcs have been plundering it, but the dwarves would have laid curses on it, right? There would have been armories and treasure chambers deep in dark and unknown places, and those might have escaped the goblins, not necessarily because they'd been successfully hidden, though they that might be one reason. Um, but because the dwarves would have laid curses on it. Because that's what dwarves do! Uh, dwarves are big on curses, laying, and especially laying curses on treasure, and in particular, laying curses on anybody who would come and take their treasure away. Right? 
Um, and Gimli, of course, is all about that, right? You know, it's like a, it is said that the you know those treasuries and things were laid under spells and curses when the dwarves fled, right? And Gimli's immediately like, "Heck yeah, we laid as many curses as we could on that stuff. It's what we do, right?" Um, and then he says, "But orcs have plundered it anyway, right?" Jerks and morons, right? Uh, so you know, showing his score and perhaps also part of his the reason for his particular animosity against orcs as well, in addition to his own family history. Um, but uh, but yeah, you absolutely should be thinking about um, be thinking about meme, uh, John. Um, the curse of meme. You know, the, again, those of you who have been doing the. Um, who have been doing the the history of the Lord of the Rings, you know, the history of, of, of Middle-earth with me, will remember that in the old days, especially back in the Book of Lost Tales, but even in the Quentin Olderinwa, the, the, the curse of Meme, you know, when Meme the dwarf lays a curse upon the treasure of Nargothrond, um, which is then taken away from him, you know, he's killed and the treasure is taken away by Hurin, um, the curse he lays upon that treasure is the most, like, dominant thing in the plot for the entire rest of the history of, of the Elder Days. It trumps the Silmarils. Um, uh, and uh, and it's the curse of Meme that ends up bringing about the destruction of Baron and Luthien and the fall of Doriath and everything, right? So, um, and remember, <clears throat> the dwarves do this in The Hobbit too, right? Remember the dwarves laying curses on things? Where do we see dwarves acting just like this? It's one of those passages in The Hobbit which is so easy to kind of just go by, right? Without really stopping to think about this. But we're all familiar with dwarves casting curses on things. Exactly, Bruce. On the troll's gold. Um, they, they bury the gold and they put spells on it. They lay curses on it. If anybody else comes and takes it. Now, Bilbo and Gandalf come back, and I don't think that they're going to be right. Exactly, Marianne, you're saying the same thing. Um, I don't think that... uh, I think that Gandalf and Bilbo are exempt from the curse because they're part of the, you know, confederacy that buried the treasure in the first place. I think that would have been okay. I don't don't think they would have triggered it. Um, But again, Hobbit dwarves are the dwarves of the early 30s, right? Um, and so we see them acting just like that. You can't... It's hard to imagine uh, the Gimli of the of the published Lord of the Rings, you know, finding some treasure and laying a curse on it, right? Um, but the Gimli of this draft is still really uh, 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 eager to own that uh, concept, right? Um you know he's he still very much avows that that's part of the that's part of the 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 whole dwarf thing right um okay all right so with that in mind we now get to a really crucial moment not only because we get to one of the coolest moments in the book uh uh you know the bridge of khazad doom who doesn't love the bridge of khazad doom but um but because this, you know, in the history of the development of the Lord of the Rings, this is a huge moment, right? Because this is as far as Tolkien's gotten. So, from here on, we're in brand new material, right? We're going to see Tolkien thinking through this stuff mostly for the very first time. Some of this stuff he's foreseen and talked about in outlines and stuff, which we discussed in the in the Return of the Shadow. But much of it, uh, he hasn't really. Uh, so we're into uh, breaking entirely new ground. So that's really fun. 
Right. Um, and the first thing that I would... Um, sh- oh, thank you, Kate, for reminding me. Um, I meant to, go, before I move on from this quickly, the, commenting on the mithril stuff, right? Which is really interesting. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, Kate says she was struck by the idea of mithril being used for weapons. Um, it made her think of silver bullets killing vampires, right? Except, Kate, it's backwards, right? Arming things like vampires with silver bullets to kill elves seems to be something like what they're talking about there. Um, and it's it's really unknown, but that, that idea that Mithril is being used in some kind of R&D project that Sauron is working on, um, and it's it's likely to be really bad, right? But we're not really... Um, we're not really sure uh, what it is that he's working, and we're never really sure, right? We're told that Sauron covets it. That's still in the published text, but we don't really get why. Um, Tolkien, in, in his sort of notes here, is emphasizing it's it's not for beauty, right? Uh, and that seems like a very Sauron-like thing to do. Um, Mithril is very useful, right? Um, he has an end to which he is going to put it. And so that's why he covets it. It's not because it's, you know, one of the most beautiful things and uh, you know, to make uh, to make stuff out of, um, but because he can make powerful things with it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we're not, I don't think it's ever really revealed exactly what Sauron was using all the mithril for, uh, but it is a really tantalizing kind of idea. Um, Bruce, it does seem like an echo of Morgoth coveting the Silmarils, but again, I think the difference there, and the difference which uh, Tolkien seems to be pointing to in that little note about weapons, not beauty, um, is that there is a sense in which Morgoth's desire for the Silmarils is a purer desire, not morally purer, but simpler desire. That is, he, he wants them for themselves. Uh, they are beautiful and he covets them. He wants them for himself. Um, but it is their beauty that, and their light that he wants for them. So, you know, he wants the Silmarils and to keep the Silmarils, but they're like a synecdoche for Arda itself, right? He want, Just like, why does he want the world, right? And to keep the world for himself. Um, so, you know, again, we see we see a similar kind of thing. Um, we don't uh, see that same thing with Sauron, with Mithril, right? His interest in Mithril would appear to be totally pragmatic. Um, and the fact that he's interested in making weapons out of it uh, exclusively and not really caring for the beauty, that's what sh- shows me that it's not really a very Silmaril-like attraction uh, that he has for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Uh, and yet there's, um, uh, both Evan and John were both just speculating, you know, is there any implication that Mithril was involved in the, in the, in the making of Grand, the hammer of the underworld, you know, the battering ram with which he takes down the gates of Minas Tirith? Um, that seems to me possible. Uh, I don't remember. There's nothing in the published text that would point to that that I can remember, unless I'm overlooking a detail in the description of Grand, but I don't recall anything about the materials of which it's made exactly that would suggest mithril composition, though that seems the kind of thing that Sauron might do with it. Um, and that's well remembered in the sense of, like, you know, it's the only kind of... Uh, weaponized 
R&D project, right, that we see Sauron producing. Um, we don't see him unleashing, like, special um, special weapons, exactly, unless uh, the Morgul Blade is the only other thing that I can, um, uh, that I can think of. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, it's... I, the yeah, I mean the wolf's head of uh, of of the uh, of the ram could conceivably be, uh, uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I I think it's it, it does have a metal head, um, but anyway, who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. No idea what the plan for Mithril was. Um, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll see so get some more hints of that as we move forward. Okay, all right, let's uh, let's go now past. The high water mark. Um, one of the general observations that I would make here, of course, you notice that Christopher. One of the things that I like and so just kind of interested in in passing is when Christopher points out to us how illegible his father's handwriting was, um, because obviously that you know as Christopher is telling us his dad was writing at great speed and notice how much Christopher emphasizes that in this passage in the in the in the battle of uh, you know on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and you know the cha- from the chamber of Mazarbal down through the bridge of Khazad-dûm uh, Christopher emphasizes that not only is Tolkien's re- writing almost completely illegible there but he's not even using uh, he's not even using complete words he's right he's using symbols and abbreviations and leaving out um Many just because he's in such a hurry to get down the words and phrases as they're as as they're coming to him. At least that is Christopher's conclusion from looking at the text, which seems to me um, very plausible. Uh, but um, anyway, so I that to me is really interesting, right? He's been in a sense stuck here, right? Or at least you know, he, he stopped at that point and then went back and spent a lot of time revising and rewriting all the stuff that he had done up to that. But when he gets to this point again, um, you know, he has like the opposite of writer's block, right? Uh, and he immediately leaps forward and this whole scene emerges and emerges with great speed. Okay. Um, First, a couple small points uh, for this from, of course, the description near the beginning of the battle at the Chamber of Mizarbal. There was a rush of horse laughter, like the fall of a slide of stones into a pit. This is from outside the door. Uh, but amid the clamor, there was one deep voice. Boom, 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 went the noises in the deep. Swiftly, Gandalf went to the opening and thrust forward his staff. There was a blinding flash that lit the chamber and the passage beyond. For an instant, Gandalf looked out. Arrows whined and whistled down the corridor as he sprang back. There are goblins, very many of them, he said. Evil they look, and large, black orcs. They are for the moment hanging back, but there is something else there. A troll, I think, or more than one. There is no hope of escape that way. Okay, two things that I wanted to point. First, one observation on the development of the story here at this point. As we can see, and as we see later on, there is no hint that the Balrog is there. Right, even when Gandalf closes the door, you know, locks the door, and and there's the cave in and everything, the Balrog isn't there yet. So when uh, the uh, there is something else there, the reference to something else being there, the reference to the one deep voice that they can hear among the rush of horse laughter, which is the orc laughter, that seems to be the troll, right? Um, so and that seems a setup for. 
Because remember, the troll is just going to come and he's going to put his shoulder and his foot uh, through the door and Frodo's going to stab it, right? Boromir's going to try to get its arm and Frodo's going to stab its foot. Um, so the uh, that that's all set up for the troll business, right? So, uh, so no Balrog. That's one thing that we can see. The second thing, though, um, nomenclature. Uh, one thing that I was kind of amused by as I was thinking about the passages for tonight's class is how... Uh, Tolkien answers two of the like top three questions that I from the first time I started my podcast. What are the questions I've gotten most often? You know, in 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 the history of like Tolkien professoring, right? What have been the three questions I've been asked most often, right? And uh, those three questions are: uh, Who is Tom Bombadil? <laughs> Uh, uh, do Balrogs have wings? And um, are orcs and goblins the same thing? Right. That's the that's the that question. Are orcs and goblins the same thing, or are they two different things? That's been one of, for, from the beginning one of the most consistent questions I've gotten and continue to get down through the years. Um, and it's interesting to see. You know, he answers this question here in this one sentence more clearly than he does in the published text. The published text makes it a little harder uh, to give the answer to that question, which is, they are the same thing. Yes, those are synonyms. Um, the difference is nomenclature. Goblin is the traditional English word. Orc is derived from Tolkien's own Elvish languages. That's the answer to the question, right? Um, and you can see it very clearly. There are goblins, black orcs, right? Um, now, there does seem to be a distinction that he's introducing um, that is larger and more evil-looking goblins, which are uh, specifically called orcs, right? Um, but, of course, that distinction was there from The Hobbit as well. Uh, the two times that the word orc is used, um, well, really, one time especially that the word orc is used, um, it's used in exactly that way, to talk about particularly large and evil goblins uh, who are called the orcs of the mountains. Um so, uh, um, yeah, Arthur, absolutely. Arthur says in the published work, I think the word goblin appears only a few times. Here, goblin appears to be the default setting. Absolutely. And what you notice, what you can notice when you look at it, I mean, if you look up the word goblin uh, in an e-text of the Lord of the Rings, for instance, um, the it's where it's used is off, like by hobbits and around hobbits. Right, um, they call them goblins. They tend to call them goblins. It's, again, it's a, it's a, it's like a dialect thing. It's a, it, it's a language thing. Um, calling orcs goblins is like on the far end of the linguistic spectrum from when uh, Legolas accidentally calls them, or no, sorry, when uh, when Haldir calls them. No, it's not even Haldir. It's his brother, isn't it? Anyway, whatever. The point is when the elf calls them ir, right? When he, when he just uses the the, uh, the elvish word for it. Um, the one from which the word orc is derived. So, uh, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's definitely... Um, uh, it's definitely the, the I mean, there's they're, they're synonyms. It just depends on who's talking and what dialect they're using, basically. Um goblin is used most often and again this we're still kind of in the hobbit frame of mind so we don't we don't see that shift uh fully happening and this is very hobbit nomenclature he uses orcs and we see over the i mean christopher pointed this out uh in his commentary over the course of this passage um we see a shift 
Right? He begins to use Orc more and more consistently as he goes through this draft and through the, the, the immediate revisions of the Bridge of Khazad-dū material, which is interesting. I mean, this might be sort of the tipping point, nomenclature-wise, where he ceases to call them and think about them primarily as goblins and shifts over uh, to calling them Orcs. And that, too, in itself is something that strikes me as significant as we think about this overall trend in uh, this overall trend in Tolkien's thinking, right? That we've been looking at throughout the history of the Lord of the Rings. This, you know, we looked at that moment when the firewall came down. I've been talking about how he's been more consciously integrating the older world, the ancient world, uh, into um, uh, into the story as he's moved forward. But um, uh, he. Um, I think that even in this shift from goblin to orc, we can see the same thing. Why? Why would he use goblin? Why does he use goblin primarily throughout The Hobbit? Right? Because it's the traditional English fairy tale word. That's the that's the idiom, right? That he's speaking in in The Hobbit. Um, he doesn't use his word, the elvish word or the elvish derived word. Um, but now he's doing that. Now he's being more comfortable with it because that's the world that he's building. Right? That's the world that he's living in, the one which has put down its roots, both narrative-wise and, um, uh, its, um, uh, and its roots linguistically, right? back into the linguistic uh, uh, seedbed of the Silmarillion. Right? Now that he's getting comfortable with that, he's okay using the word orc more. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. All right, let's um, let's keep going. So Gandalf's locking of the door uh, to the chamber of Mazarbal, right? Really, really interesting to see that develop. So here's the first version of that. As they went down the dark stairs, they saw the pale light gleam from the wizard's staff. He was still standing by the closed door. Frodo, leaning on Sam, halted a moment and peered back. Remember, Frodo's just been not skewered by the orc uh, uh, spear. Gandalf seemed to be thrusting the tip of his staff into the ancient keyhole. Suddenly there was a flash more dazzling uh, something than any that they had ever conceived of. They all turned. There was a deafening crash. The swords in their hands leaped and wrenched in their fingers, and they stumbled and fell to their knees as the great blast passed down the stairway. Into the midst of them fell Gandalf. Well, that's that, he said. It was all I could do. I expect I have buried Balin, but alas for my staff, we shall have to go by guess in the dark. Gimli and I will lead. They followed in amazement, and as they stumbled behind, he gasped out some information. I have lost my staff, part of my beard, and an inch of my eyebrows, he said. <laughs> I wish that line stayed. Gandalf losing an inch of his eyebrows. Oh, man. I mean, and what kind of um, embarrassment of riches do you have to be blessed with by nature, such that you can have a full inch of eyebrow to lose, right? Uh, and, and, well, Nancy, remember, his eyebrows stick out past the brim of his hat, we're told. And that's consistent. We're told that in The Hobbit, and it's reiterated uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring that his eyebrows stick out past the brim of his hat. So he, this is a guy who can lose an inch of eyebrow and still have eyebrows to speak of. Uh, it's really kind of amazing. Um, 
So, uh, so yeah, I, you know, Gandalf is like my eyebrow hero. I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's just one of the things that I aspire to is having eyebrows. That's I've got so long to go though. It's just pitiful. My eyebrows compared to that. Um, but anyway, okay. Okay. Uh, but I blasted the door and felled the roof against it, and if the chamber of Mizarbo is not a heap of ruins behind it, then I am no wizard. All the power of my staff was expended in a flash. It was shattered to bits. Okay, so, um, this is really interesting, right? There's lots that's really interesting about this. Okay, so first, as we as said before, no Balrog, right? So, Gandalf doesn't do what he does in conflict, like, you know, the, the cave-in doesn't happen as a result of the battle of wills between him and the something else that's behind the door in there. Um, uh, so the question is, uh, what, um, what is the, yeah, good, uh, many of you are focused on the question of the staff, right? How big of a deal is this? Um, you know, the, uh, you know, Sharon is saying the nature, function, and power limitation of Gandalf's staff is so different. Yes. Um, uh, Nadia says he seems pretty chill about his staff blowing up when it seems in the main text that it's a big deal. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's like, well, I'm not going to be able to make a light now, right? But, uh, but yeah, he does, that doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be a part of his identity, exactly. Um, so I would agree. On the one hand, I would agree that um, this shows a lower view of the significance of Gandalf's staff than, you know, of like a wizard's staff than we will come to see later on, right? But, um, uh, I would, in a sense, simultaneously make exactly the opposite point, too. Yes, it's true. Um, the breaking of a wizard staff does not yet seem to mean what it's later going to come to mean. But, this seems to me, uh, the staff has made a bigger deal of here, I think, than we've seen it elsewhere. Um, the idea, all the power of my staff was expended it was shattered to bits. Think about that for a second. There is power in Gandalf's staff. His staff is somehow attached to his power. Um, what does that even mean? It's not at all obvious that that's the case, but I mean, he uses his staff. His staff is a tool of his wizardry. Um, we've seen him make lights with it. I mean, what he just did, right? He, when he sticks his staff through the door and makes the bright lights and then pokes his head out so he can see who's out there. And he tells, uh, you know, there are goblins and, the bla- and you know, black orcs and, and uh, a troll or more than one, right? And remember, that's exactly the same thing that he does uh, in uh, Bilbo's Hobbit Hole back in Chapter 1. That's what leads Bilbo to say, struck by lightning, struck by lightning, is when Gandalf makes a blue light flash from his staff. Um, So, but again, that is, the staff in The Hobbit doesn't necessarily seem to be any more um, intrinsically powerful than, like, the smoke rings were, okay? Um, uh, 
Patricia says, does it mean it can't recover or recharge? Well, no, it's, I mean, it, it's broken now, right? Um, but Patricia, the whole idea of saying the staff would need to recharge, that it has a charge in it, right? That there is power in the staff itself. That's different. We just, we, I don't, I, I, I'm trying to think of any other moment where we've seen anything like that with the staff. Any, any, any reason to believe that the staff worked that way? That it was itself a, a magical implement and not merely a tool uh, being used by the wizard himself. Um, uh, exactly, Tom. Tom Hillman points out, like the ring to Sauron's strength, there does seem to be a parallel there. Does Has Gandalf placed some of his the power of his wizardry in his staff? Um, like, but benevolently and not as extreme or whatever as Sauron putting some of his power in the ring? Um, we don't really, we don't really know. Um, and yes, Tony, you're right. The staff is often referred to as a wand, uh, in the Hobbit. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Tony argues that it's sort of making it more like a piece of equipment. Um, yes, yes. He uses those two words, wand and staff, kind of interchangeably, which is super confusing, uh, to a lot of people. Um, this came up in the Hobbit camp this summer with the kids. Uh, we're like, why does he have a wand sometimes and a, a staff sometimes? It's like, nah, it's the same thing, actually. It's this, it's the kind of, like, not synonyms anymore, but it kind of was. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so the fact that, um, his staff is a magic staff is, I would argue, a big deal, right? Um, but I agree, still not, the staff is still not as big a deal as it's going to be later on, right? Um, and he's going to immediately revise this, right? Even before he continues and finishes, he's going to stop and go back and revise this. And the thing he's going to revise is he doesn't want the staff to break. Or rather, he wants the staff to break, but he wants the staff not to break until he gets to the bridge, right? Um, He doesn't want Gandalf to blow his staff on the door. He wants Gandalf to save his staff and blow the staff uh, in the fight with the Balrog, right? Um, So... In it, but in a sense, that doesn't change what we're talking about here. Uh, the fact that there is still this idea of Gandalf um, having this stored up power in his staff, which can be expended in a flash, right? Which will shatter the staff, but have a spectacular effect, right? That seems to be still um, uh, something that, uh, that, that is still going to be in the concept. Um, Tara asks a really interesting question. You know, does it mean... Does this mean that Gandalf's staff could be wielded by others, right? So if somebody else gets Gandalf's staff, would they get its power? Could they do this, right? A good question. Um, I don't really, I don't really know, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Sharon says Gandalf's Gandalf doesn't seem super concerned, and it, it makes her think that he could just procure procure another one, perhaps with even better stats later on. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean it's you know he doesn't um, he doesn't seem to be all that um, uh, uh, bent out of shape about it. Again, it's inconvenient, uh, but he's not. Uh, uh, it's it is a big deal in the sense that he he's not done this before, right? Um, I mean, this is Gandalf going above and beyond what we've seen him do in any 
uh, at any point in the Hobbit or in the in the Lord of the Rings to this point. Um, but uh, yeah, exactly. Tony's gonna have to pop into Ollivander's again. Um, yeah, and Brandon, I, I absolutely agree with you. By the way, that uh, the 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 use of wands in Harry Potter is the number one thing that causes the confusion about the wand and the staff, right? Uh, because now there's that very clear mental picture of what a wizard with a wand uh, uh, is. And so when he uses that word, that's the, the mental image, I think, especially uh, in the, the, uh, the, the minds of uh, the youth of today. Um, yeah, okay. But, so let's look at the immediate... Um, the immediate revision. Suddenly they heard him cry out in strange words in tones of thunder, and there was a flash more dazzling than any they had ever conceived of. It was as if lightning had just had passed just before their eyes and seared them. The swords in their hands leapt and wrenched in their fingers. There was a deafening crash, and they fell or stumbled to their knees as a rush of wind passed down the stairway. Into the midst of them fell Gandalf. "'Well, that's that,' he said. "'I have buried poor old Balin. "'It was all I could do. "'I nearly killed myself. "'Struck out as soon as written, "'it will take me years to recover my strength and wizardry.'" Now, Tolkien immediately crossed that out, right? But that, but he said that, right? So, okay, that seems to me to kind of answer the question. So, obviously, the, the central element of this revision is save the staff, right? Save the staff, break the staff with the Balrog, don't break the staff here. But um, the fact that he's not going to break the staff, but he's going to say, it will take me years to recover my strength in wizardry, does suggest to me that when Gandalf breaks his staff, it's a big deal. This isn't something that he can just overcome. Like, oh, you know, the next grove I get, I'll cut myself a new staff and I'll be fine, right? Um, it's not like that. This is a, the, the, the concept is, this is a serious sacrifice. Now he cuts it out right away, Maybe this is too extreme. You know, the whole, it will take me years to recover. Really, years, Gandalf? Maybe you know. May, maybe that's what uh, we don't know why he cut it out. Maybe that's what he didn't like about it. We're not sure. Um, but um, but in any case, there is uh, uh, the clear sense that he has made a significant sacrifice. He has expended a large amount of his power in accomplishing what he accomplished. Um, Tolkien's initial uh, way of manifesting that is with the breaking of the staff, right? And so, but he still doesn't want to give up on that idea. But notice here again, it will take me years to recover my strength and wizardry. That's different. One of the things we've been looking at, one of the things we've been wondering about is when does Gandalf become Gandalf, right? We've been saying, um, I've been arguing, that the Gandalf that we have seen through the Lord of the Rings so far is still the Gandalf of the Hobbit, right? Is still the dude who is a professional wizard, like other professional wizards, right? And we've now met some of his colleagues, right? In Saruman and Radagast, um, who are parts of this White Council, uh, you know, and who have their different areas of expertise, and all of whom initially were gray, right? At least briefly. Um, uh, and the question I've been asking is, let's watch, like, when does Gandalf change, right? It's hard for me to read this passage in all of its manifestations here, and not think that change is happening, 
right? Whether it's his staff which now has power in it, or whether he is expending his strength in wizardry in a burst that will take him years to recover from, this is no longer a guy whose profession is wizard, as Bilbo's newfound profession was going to be burglary in The Hobbit, right? Um, This is... There is a different relationship between Gandalf and his power, Gandalf and his wizardry, that we're seeing here. Think about it. We never saw Gandalf tired. We saw Gandalf limited before, right? Like, there's only so much he can do um, when they're captured by the goblins, right? He wakes up in time to kill a few of them with a flash, right? And then to sneak in after them. And then he has to wump up the best magic he can think of in the moment to make the flames burst up and the smoke come and then, uh, you know, kill the great goblin. Um, So that is, there are limitations to his power. When he's up the tree and the wargs are gathered around and the goblins are, 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 well, goblins aren't there yet, but still when the wargs are there uh, and he starts burning pine cones, there's only so much he can do Right, uh, you know he's not capable of uh, of just coming down and kicking everybody's butt, right? Um, but do we have we have we ever seen him weary? Like he's used so much magic that he's weary because of expending power. You see what I mean? I can't think of any examples of anything like that. Um, again, it's like either he can do it or he can't do it, or the circumstances prevent him from doing it. Um, but it doesn't seem to have been a part of him. This is not him expending himself in power. And that seems to me a really important shift. And um, Tom, I think it was you, Tom, uh, coming back to what you were saying before, it is like Sauron in the Ring of Power, in a sense. right? Now Gandalf's wizardry is an extension of his own being, of his own will, of his own power, in a way which is like... Morgoth exerting his power and putting his, uh, some you know, uh, dispersing his power among his followers, right, to make them stronger and full of anger and hatred, um, uh, like Sauron putting his power into the rings so that he could dominate the wills of others. I mean, obviously the the objectives that they're going for, the kinds of things that they're doing, very different. I'm not trying to say that he's his motivations or or his means even are the same. But this seems to be putting Gandalf kind of on that level of now not just a guy who is a wizard by profession, but a spiritual power who has power of his own that can be expended um, and which, if he spends too much of it, will leave him weakened by it, as Melkor was weakened, as Sauron was weakened, right? Um... Yeah, good, Tony. Uh, thank you for the reminder there about how, uh, on Karathras how he can't burn snow. Even there, yes, we can see him acting still like the Hobbit Gandalf. Right? There are some things his magic can do, and some things his magic can't do. Set fire to wet wood in the middle of a snowstorm can do. Right? Burn snow can't do. Right? Um, but again, it's not about like I am too weary. I have expended too much power already. Nothing like that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Yana, uh, the questions that you're asking, is he, I knew yet, where does his power come from? We have no idea. We have, this is exactly what we have to figure this out from, 
right? Um, we'll get uh, Tolkien talking about Gandalf after the fact, but that's what's so much fun about looking at this happening, and that's why I'm thinking, in, in my mind, this passage, um, especially since, remember, it's contrasted not only with Carothras, but even with the gates, right? And him coming up with the uh, with the with the 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 opening words, right? Um, as uh, 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 who was uh, who was saying this that he um, he either knows yes Brian Dimmick was saying he he either knows the spell or he doesn't know the right spell, right? That's what we saw even at the gates of Khazad-dûm. So this time through, now that we've gone past that high water mark and are continuing the story now. Um, one of the first things I think that we can see, Gandalf has changed. So in the moment that he actually sits down to write the scene where Gandalf falls uh, and dies on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, Gandalf seems to be getting a promotion. You know, would he yet say, oh, Gandalf is totally an Ainu, right? You know, he's one of the Maya. Um, is one of the Maya. Is that, uh, is that has that happened yet officially in Tolkien's mind? Ah, you know, we have no idea. No, no, no way to guess that from this. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, it's I, it's this is definitely different. I think. Um, yeah, interesting, Tony. It's gone from being an external skill to an internal uh, attribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. Let's keep. Oh no! Wait. Before we keep going. Um, Really important point. Several of you were asking about it, and I've been skipping over it for the present. That business about the swords. The swords and their hands leapt and wrenched in their fingers. That's consistent in all three versions of this story, as he revises and revises it here before he moves on. Um, What's up with that? I have no idea what's up with that. Um, I have no idea what's up with that, but it makes me think of a couple different things. One, is it possible that what he's describing is a physical effect? That is to say, is it possible that what he's describing is something like electromagnetism? The comparison to lightning in this passage is what makes me think that, right? Is Gandalf expending electric you know, he's expending, like, it's, it's, it's a blast of something like electricity such that the metal swords in their hands leap, right? Um, because there's, like, some kind of, like, temporary magnetic effect. That seems like a very alien thought to Tolkien. It's, it's not how Tolkien seems to normally think. But it seems to me one way, potentially, to explain it. Um, because it seems to be, in the description, it seems to be a testimony to the potency of what Gandalf has just done, right? Um, more likely, however, to me, seems the idea that this is connected to, or rather, it's related to the reaction of weapons to um, uh, to the Witch King. Yeah, uh, Arthur was thinking about this. Um, the Witch King raises his hand and Frodo's sword is shattered um, uh, at the Ford of Bruinen. Um Yes, yes, it's like that. Um, uh, Tony, I agree that it's there's something like what happens with their weapons, with Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn's weapons when Gandalf returns as the White Rider. 
I agree that he has an influence on weapons then, but I don't think this is the same. Um, I'll be interested to compare the very first version of that when we get there and see what we think about that. But I don't think this is the same as that. Um, I also The other thing that I'm thinking of, though, is the fact that we have... Um, Uh, all blades perish that pierce uh, the Wizard King. I don't think we've gotten that yet. Um, did we? Somebody remind me, or somebody go back and look it up. In the in the first account of the battle under the Dell, um, we get the slashed cloak, right? Does Trotter say that you can tell that Frodo didn't hit him because his sword survived, his sword wasn't destroyed? I have a vague memory that that was in there from the beginning, um, but uh, but let me know. Somebody look it up and tell me if if I'm right about that. Um, I don't know what to make of that connection, though. Um, is there some sense in which the weapons in their hand are responding to the presence of his magic, the presence of his power? in a way which is similar, but presumably different from the way that weapons interact with the power of the Wizard King. I don't, again, I don't, I don't understand that well enough to uh, see what exactly the connection is. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I mean, you're right, Arthur, that uh, Elendil's sword broke when he faced Sauron, but yeah, we don't know exactly uh, how that happens or how it would relate to, uh, um, to what we see here with the responsive weapons, or yeah, um, it doesn't strike me. I don't think the Elendil sword thing is a very good parallel, mostly because the significance of the broken sword. Um, rem- remember, the broken sword of Elendil is a is a fairly new innovation, and it's attached very firmly to the idea of the prophecy, right? Elendil's prophecy when he, before he dies. Um, it, is, uh, it is connected to Elendil's prophecy of, of the sword being reforged at a significant point in the future, like the once-in-future King, uh, King Arthur business that we get there with Elendil. Um, so I don't see it as necessarily a response to magic and magical power thing, necessarily. Um... Tony says it almost sounds like an animistic thing where inanimate objects are aware and, and reactive. Right. As if, like, their swords don't actually talk to them like Turin's do, but, you know, they might, right? They they seem to be uh, jumping in startlement, right, uh, when the when the wizard's uh, power goes off upstairs. Um, I, that possibly, possibly, that is a, another possible way to understand it. So, at the end of the day, I don't know what to make of it, the jumping of the swords in their hands. Um... Is he describing a physical phenomenon? Is he describing... Is there some kind of thing with magic and weapons? I don't know. I don't know. But it's consistent. The swords jumping in their hands is... It means something. But I don't know what it is yet. So let's let's hold on to that and see if we get any more data that might help us to, uh, uh, to understand that a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. A figure strode to the fissure, no more than man high, yet terror seemed to go before it. They could see the furnace fire of its yellow eyes from afar. Its arms were very long. It had a red tongue, possibly. Through the air it sprang over the fiery fissure. 
The flames leaped up to greet it and wreathed about it. Its streaming hair seemed to catch fire, and the sword that it held turned to flame. In its other hand it held a whip of many thongs. Aye, aye, wailed Legolas. The Balrogs are... A Balrog is come! A Balrog, said Gandalf. What evil fortune, and my power is nearly spent. The fiery figure ran across the floor. The orcs yelled and shot many arrows. Okay, first of all, Gandalf has never said my power. He doesn't talk like that. Um, and again, you know, think about how he talks about, you know, it being touch and go and him, uh, uh, you know, making a special study of, of, um, of spells and incantations involving fires and smokes, right? In the Hobbit, we, there's no, like, my power is nearly spent. That's exactly what he's never, exactly the kind of thing he's never, uh, he's never said before. Um, Stephen, the stature of the Balrog is really important here, right? And that's consistent all the way through here as well. Um, he is, he's, he's, he's man size. Um, he is no more than man high. Um, and that's going to be consistent. There's no question. I mean, when you read these initial descriptions, the question of like, d- uh, reading these initial drafts makes the do Balrogs have wings question exactly as trivial as it really is, right? I mean, as soon as you see that the wings of shadow, that he, you know, that, that the wings of the Balrog are totally metaphorical, um, it's easy to overlook that. And I totally understand. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to people who, who misread that passage in that way. In a sense, it's almost like, it's not exactly like, but it's almost like the one staff thing, right? If somebody, um, you know, had if, if a you know a reader has the mis- misunderstanding that Gandalf has a wand like Harry Potter, I mean that's incorrect. But I I couldn't blame them for for that misreading, just as I never blame people uh, for misreading the passage about wings. Um, uh, it's obviously metaphorical when you read through the text carefully. It's first a simile and then a metaphor. Um, but the question becomes just as. Uh, becomes quite obviously moot uh, when you read it the first time. He's 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 just a guy, um, uh, or a, a guy shape. He's like a demon in 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 anthropomorphic shape, right? And he's not any bigger. Uh, and uh, yeah, he. Um, uh, Nancy is blown away by the fact that he has hair. Right? Yeah, he's got hair. Right? He's uh, streaming hair. His long, his long hair. Right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, James, thank you for looking that up. The All Blades Parish line isn't there. Um, okay. Okay. Good. Good. Um, okay. So all that we have really to work with there is the shattering of Frodo's sword at the four at the. Ford, which is really quite different, because that's the the wizard king exerting his will deliberately upon. He's raising his hand and exerting his will upon Frodo's sword, which is totally different from like swords reacting in the presence of magic, basically. Okay. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Good. Good. Um. Uh, good. Yeah. Yana was just uh, was just saying the same thing. Um. 
Yeah, good, good. Um, Sharon, you are so right about that, and I never thought of that at all. Sharon says it's it's uh, it's also like a, a misreading when you hear about Smaug purring like a cat, and then you know imagine Smaug having feline features. Sharon, that I had never thought of that. I'm thinking, of course, of the bizarrely feline Smaug in the Rankin Bass Hobbit, right? Which always totally freaked me out, and I was like, what, like, you know, what. Um, bad batch of uh of of uh psychotropic drugs did they get uh to lead them to make a cat like smaug maybe that's it maybe that's it it never even occurred to me but i can see it now that you pointed out i can see it anyway um okay uh uh <laughs> anyhow uh um this is uh so yeah so Seeing the Balrog here, there's really there's no question of um, um, of him having uh, of him, um, him having wings or even being big. Legolas's first response: the Balrogs are, and yes, several of you are making the British are coming. Paul Revere jokes, uh, and of course, yeah, it makes me think of that too. Um, but um, I really wish that Tolkien, even if he changed it, I wish he'd finished that sentence. What was Legolas going to say? The Balrogs are are back? What? Like, um, the fact that Legolas's first impulse is to think of the Balrogs in the plural is fascinating, right? Um, this Balrog, the Balrog that they meet here, is... This looks and sounds... This has all the implications of a fall of Gondolin Balrog. Um, <coughs> so... In uh, in the old Silmarillion, there were bunches of Balrogs, scads of them, troops of them, uh, and dozens of them are killed at the Battle of Gondolin. So in the only completed version of the Fall of Gondolin Tolkien ever wrote, namely the one that's in the Book of Lost Tales, namely one of the very first uh, uh, Middle-earth stories he ever wrote... Um, Balrogs are not like huge, and I, I'm, I'm not speaking physically even. Um, they're not huge physically, um, but they're not like the made the captains of the army. They are the elite troops of the army. Um, Turin kills. I mean, how many does Turin kill? At least seven uh, during the battle. Um, so um, anyhow, yeah. Um, yeah, and Tom says it's. It almost sounds like this Legolas is that Legolas. Yes, Tom, with the name, right? Legolas Greenleaf, who was originally Legolas Greenleaf of Gondolin. Um, the fact that he's reacting to Balrogs like that. I mean, again, he would have he would have seen them coming. Um, so, Balrogs increase in stature as time goes on. That we will come to the point where there where there will be apparently only a small number. There were ever only a very small number of Balrogs, and they are each one of them individually a huge deal. Um, they are the great captains and generals of, of Morgoth's army, not his elite shock troops. Um, this Balrog is an elite... Uh, this sounds like an elite shock troop Balrog. So the mere fact that Legolas's first impulse is to speak of the Balrogs in the plural seems to me to hint at that. And the description of it, the smaller stature... Uh, this sounds exactly like the kind of Balrog that Turin offed seven of during the course of the battle. They're really terrible. I mean, they're a big deal. Uh, the, I mean, 
this guy's really awesome, right? The flames leaping up to greet it, and and uh, his hair catching fire, and his sword blazing with. Fl- I mean, this guy's a big deal, right? Um, but uh, you know, a really great warrior at a really epic moment could totally take seven of them uh, over the course of the battle, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Tony and Margaret are thinking about Legolas of Gondolin having like deja vu here, uh, some kind of flashback. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. James, uh, James Oakley is remembering the hundred Balrogs riding on the, the metal dragons. Yes, absolutely. This seems that you can easily imagine the Balrog as he's described here being one of those Balrogs. Um, and, I would I would say it the other way around too. We don't get such a detailed description of a Balrog uh, in the Fall of Gondolin, um, but I would definitely read this. I mean, it's it's a bit of a risk because we don't know for sure. But if you ask me, what do the Balrogs in the Fall of Gondolin? What should we be picturing? Th- my answer is this: This is what we should be picturing. I think this is what the Fall of Gondolin Balrogs were like. Um, so that's interesting. So that's another thing we need to see. When does this Balrog becomes a big deal? You'll know. You notice what else it isn't. Christopher pointed this out in his commentary before. It is not yet Durin's bane. Right. We don't have any clear evidence of that. Um, the significance of this, as uh, you know, sort of its stature as Durin's bane. Um, it's just a Balrog. Still a big deal, but uh, not quite as big a deal. And of course, literally not that big a deal. Uh, physically not that big. Suddenly, with a spout of flame, it sprang on the bridge, but Gandalf stood firm. You cannot pass, he said. Go back. Struck out, probably as soon as written, go back into the fiery depths. It is forbidden for any Balrog to come beneath the sky, since Fionwe, son of Manwe, overthrew Thangorodrim. Okay, again, explicit integration of the old world, right? Go back to the fiery depths. So, I guess... Uh, Fionwe, uh, son of Manwe, and here's the answer to the question we were asking last week, right, to the Valar still... No, wait. It wasn't last week. It was last night. Holy cow. It was in Exploring, exploring the Lord of the Rings. People were asking, because we were talking about Goldberry, daughter of the river, uh, and so people were asking, at this point in Tolkien's conception, do the Valar still have kids? And I couldn't remember, and we looked it up and decided that they still did in the 1937 Quenta, and here it is, right there, right? Um... Uh, Fionway's son is is still is you know the uh, the he who will later be the uh, you know the herald of Manway is is is, is still his son. Um, so apparently at the War of Wrath, Fionway banishes the Balrogs to the fiery depths of the earth, and they're not allowed to emerge. Now you're right, Julie. Uh, he could have. Uh, he could have argued a technicality, right? I'm actually, I'm not beneath the sky, man. I'm still underground here, technically, so get off my business, right? Uh, but, um, uh, but you know, that would be that would be a technicality. Um, so yeah, I, Yana, I do think we're supposed to understand that the Balrogs were locked away. I don't know in the, I don't know about in the ruins of uh, Thangarodrum, but they do seem to be imprisoned. Um, they were banished. They're forbidden. It's forbidden for them to 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 emerge. Right, um, so it's not just locked in prison from which they may be released. Right, perhaps inadvertently, perhaps ill-advisedly, but from which they could be released. Um, they were banished. Forbidden is a really interesting word there. Right, but he strikes that out. So okay, so let's, let's say, go back. I am the master of the white fire. 
The red flame cannot come this way. The creature made no reply, but standing up tall so that it loomed above the wizard, it strode forward and smote him. A sheet of white flame sprang before him, possibly like a shield, and the Balrog fell backward. Its sword shivered into molten pieces and flew, but Gandalf's staff snapped and fell from his hand. Okay. I am the master of the white fire. The red flame cannot come this way. Um, so it's not just wizards that are color-coded. The Balrogs are the red, apparently. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so... Uh, Bruce, I agree with you. Bruce uh, says it sounds uh, uh, kind of biblical, banishing the devil and his demons to the lake of fire. Uh, I, I, I agree. It has that overtone. Uh, it's hard for me to avoid that kind of uh, book of uh, revelation uh, language there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so this is why we immediately pitched the staff breaking scene because we want the staff to break here. So this seems to be a sacrificial, um, uh, a sacrificial moment on his part, where he is sacrificing his power in order to overcome the Balrog. So the Balrog's sword is destroyed, but Gandalf's staff is destroyed in that same act, right? Um, and But Marianne, I agree. The business about the fire, uh, Marianne uh, points out the significance. I am master of the white fire. He doesn't call himself a servant. He calls himself a master, right? And what is he the master of? He's the master of the white fire, capital W, capital F. What does that mean? I haven't the faintest idea what that means, right? But we've been getting some hints, right? Um, My power is spent. Gandalf now has power which can be used up, right? He has power which is apparently, um, which is apparently invested in his staff, right? Sword in some way in his staff. Um, that power, whatever the source of his power is, whatever the nature of his power is, it is being characterized as the white fire. So being a wizard now, Gandalf being a wizard is no longer like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a fireman. Oh, I want to be a policeman. Oh, I want to be a wizard, right? It's not no longer a profession like that, like burglar or hero or warrior, right? Uh, now it's, um, it's something to do with his being, and he, the way he articulates that is, I am the master of the white fire. And we see that immediately played out. The, the red flame cannot come this way. He, the Balrog, attempts to exert the red flame, and Gandalf interposes the white fire. And truly, the white fire does turn out to be superior. Turns out to be the more powerful of the two. Um, and the Balrog is repulsed and his sword is broken, but it's not without cost. Gandalf has to break his staff in order to make... But the breaking of the staff seems to function in exactly the same way as it did before. He's just using it differently. Instead of using, expelling the power of his staff in order to break the door and cave in the room, now he's doing it in order to oppose the strike of the Balrog. Um, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, James, this is definitely the first time we see Gandalf talk with this type of authority. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, after this, things fall slightly into anticlimax, right? Gandalf's staff is broken. The, Gan- the Balrog's sword is broken, right? So what's left is like fisticuffs, basically. With a gasping hiss, the Balrog sprang up. It seemed to be maybe half blind, but it came on and grasped at the wizard. Glamdring shore off its empty right hand. Not quite fisticuffs, he still does have Glamdring, right? So he cuts its hand off. But in that instant, as he delivered the stroke, the Balrog struck with his whip. Remember how hard it is to read. Um, Struck with its whip. The thongs lashed round the wizard's knees, and he staggered. Seizing Legolas's bow, remember Legolas has been shot through the shoulder so he can't shoot. Uh, Gimli shot, but the arrow fell, something or other. Uh, Trotter sprang back along the bridge with his sword, but at that moment a great troll came up from the other side and leaped on the bridge. There was a terrible crack and the bridge broke. All the western end fell. With a terrible cry, the troll fell after it, and the Balrog tumbled sideways with a yell and fell into the chasm. Before Trotter could reach the wizard, the bridge broke before his feet, and with a great cry, Gandalf fell into the darkness. So the breaking of the bridge is like an accident. Right, it's just the tr- this big old this big old troll uh, breaks the bridge. Um, Gandalf's opposition, Gandalf's opposition of the Balrog, is force against force. Right, you come at me with your red fire sword, I oppose you with my shield of white fire. Right, breaking my staff in order to do that really effectively. Um, uh. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, uh, just a quick note there, uh, Peregrine on the Twitch chat. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about the early drafts. Uh, the, this is the Treason of Isengard we're discussing, so that's why he's Trotter, not Strider. Um, okay, so... Uh, um, so yeah, the, so we it's a very physical altercation, right? After the after we have the fire versus fire, now it's just hand to hand, right? Well, of course, you know, the hand to hand doesn't go so well when one of them has a sword and the other doesn't anymore, and he cuts off one of his hands. Um, but uh, but it's still a physical str- uh, struggle, and then they just like topple over when some when a, th- a completely separate third party breaks the bridge, right? Um, this makes, of course, Gandalf's fall less specifically sacrificial. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, you know, and that's going to change fairly quickly, right? Um, he, he goes back and he redoes it quickly. So this is his, his quick reconsideration of the scene. There's a penciled note written on the manuscript against the description of the Balrog, alter description of Balrog. It seemed to be of man's shape, but its form could not be plainly discerned. It felt larger than it looked, right? So he's not changing it to make it gigantic in size, but he does want to emphasize it it doesn't just look like some dude, right? Um, It felt larger than it looked. I really like that. After the words, through the air it sprang over the fiery fissure, my father added, and a great shadow seemed to black out the light. So it's been flame from the beginning. The shadow gets added afterwards, right? And at the end of the text, before he had finished it, for the concluding passage is written around the words, he wrote, No, Gandalf breaks the bridge and Balrog falls, but lassoes him. Um, so the, the, the concept of Gandalf's 
deliberate breaking of the bridge and casting down of the Balrog, not just the two of them falling over when some troll breaks the bridge. That comes in very quickly. Um, Yana, I, I don't know how Legolas was going to get healed, but Legolas does get severely injured. I mean, he takes a, an arrow through the through the shoulder. I mean, they're heading to Lothlorien after this, so he'll be able to get healing. How is that going to impact them, you know, down the road? I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, yeah. Um, but Tony, I agree. That first Impulse was a much more physical, less mythic fight, but it gets more mythic right away, right? Um... Uh, so in B, which is the, the 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 second manuscript, the revised manuscript that he writes right away, whereas C remembers the fair copy that he writes after that. In B, it is said only that the Balrog stood facing him. In C, the Balrog halted facing him, and the shadow about him reached out like great wings. Immediately afterwards, where in the Fellowship of the Ring, the Balrog drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall, those wings of shadow, those metaphorical wings of shadow, which have been such a problem for so many people, um, neither B nor C has the words to a great height, nor speaks of the wings. Gandalf's words to the Balrog remain in B very close to the original draft, with white fire for the white fire. I am the master of white fire, he says. I am the master of white fire. In C, this was changed in the act of writing, you cannot pass, I am master of white flame. Neither red fire nor black shadow can change to, the red fire cannot come this way, go back to the shadow. I am the master of white flame. Um, suggests a, a, um, I don't know what, a technique, right? Um, you know, it makes it sound more like Gandalf is saying something like, I know something you do not know, right? I am the ma- I have mastered white flame, right? Uh, you think you can come this way, but that's no good. I know the white flame spell, right? So forget about that. Um, James, yes, it's more like a skill that he's mastered. Absolutely. That does seem to be the... Um, and no, there doesn't seem to be any indication that it's the secret fire. James, we, are, we, we seem to be miles away from the secret fire. Um, more than miles. We are at, a, at, at an almost infinite remove from... I, I am the servant of the secret fire is a statement totally different from what Gandalf says here. He is declaring to the Balrog, you can't pass. And let me explain why you can't pass, my friend, right? Oh, Mr. Wielder of the Red Fire, I've got the white flame. So, you know, like, rock beat scissors, man. Right, so you can't pass this way because I've got the white flame, you've got the red fire, and you've got the black shadow. But whatever, both of those get beaten by the white flame. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, I can't, I can't help but think of listening to my nine-year-old son Matthias talk about Pokemon, right, and how he's upgraded his Pokemon so that he can gets this new skill. Uh, and it's like now, you know, he's uh, trained his Pokemon to develop this new attack so that it can beat, you know, uh, 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 other electric types. Like, that's honestly what it kind of sounds like Gandalf is saying here. Um, 
What you don't know is that I have the white flame attack, and the white flame attack totally beats your red fire and black shadow attack. Um, therefore, and that is why, my friend, you cannot pass. It's physically impossible for you to pass, because I'm going to whoop you right now with my white flame. Um, and it's, it is uh, uh, Gandalf saying, I am the servant of the, of the secret fire, is in every way a completely different kind of statement to that. Um, Nancy says, so it's mostly smack talk at this point. Yeah, honestly, yes. I would characterize this, you cannot pass, I am the master of white flame, the red fire cannot come this way, go back to the shadow. I, I would put that under the category smack talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, the section on the Astarian Unfinished Tales is written well after the publication of The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, in other words, it's written about 15 years, 15, 16, 17 years after he wrote this passage. Yes. Um, what becomes clear here, again, in thinking about who Gandalf is, um, so, Yana, you were asking before, like, what, you know, do we, do we have any evidence to know whether or not Gandalf thinks of him as a Maya? I'm going to go with no. Uh, because he does, he's, he's not talking like a Maya here. Um, but, um, we don't know for sure, uh, right? And he's clearly something more, so he's more than he was before this whole, like, you know, expending his power and, and, and all that stuff. Very different, as we've been saying, uh, and the stuff with his staff, very different than what we've seen before. But he's not yet anything like a servant of the secret fire. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Tom. It's a matter of whose power it is. The servant of the secret fire uses power that is not his own. Yes, he's saying, uh, in saying I'm a servant of the secret power, he's like, by the way, uh, I have some delegated authority here. Right. And I got to warn you, you know, uh, you, you're not dealing with maybe what you think you're dealing with. Right. Um, here he's talking about Gandalf is talking about in these statements, Gandalf's talking about himself. Right. He's not talking about his allegiances. He's not talking about any kind of delegated authority he may have been granted. Um, and it certainly has nothing to do with a ring of power. Right. Um, remember, the three rings are gone. They were sent to Valinor, right? Um, they were A, made by Sauron in the first place, and B, they're not in Middle-earth anymore. Um, this is just about Gandalf and his own upgrading, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's keep going. So now we, we, we move into the post-Balrog era, right? Um and we sit down to one of my favorite things. <clears throat> I love the plot outlines. The plot outlines are my favorite part, by far, of the whole history of the Lord of the Rings thing. And I have a problem. My problem with this chapter, uh, the, uh, the, the, the next moves after uh, the Bridge of Khazad Doom, I was going through this chapter, I'm like, what parts do we skip? I can't, you know, normally I try to select like the, you know, things that I think, you know, uh, uh, point to particularly interesting ideas and places where we can, uh, you know, trace particular themes or concepts that we've been looking at over the course of, uh, uh, over the course of our study of the return of the shadow and the treason of Isengard. Um, but I'm going through this chapter and I'm like, 
every paragraph. I can't, like, there's nothing. Holy cow, there's nothing we can skip. So I'm anticipating getting behind. Um, but let's uh, let's at least start. So here is the the plot outline of what's going to happen after Moria. Now, or, yeah, yeah, after Moria. Now, keep in mind, remember that 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 string of beads, right? Um, the the conception of the story. Remember what we had. <clears throat> he had from Rivendell, right? Uh, we got across the mountains. We've got Fangorn and the giant tree beard, right? Who is an antagonist and who's like, there's going to be an adventure, right? With the giant tree beard. So that's on the path to Mount Doom. Uh, and there's the river. Uh, and then we got the dead marshes. The dead marshes came in as another bead on that string, right? That connects Rivendell to Mordor, right? Um, but it was still pretty unclear. Lothlorien, the name Lothlorien was tossed out as maybe another incident along the way, right? Um, so we get here the first fleshing out of those things. And so here's our first glimpse of Lothlorien. Reached Lothlorien December 15. Take refuge up trees. Elves befriend them. December 15, 16, 17. They journey to Angle between Anduin and Blackroot. There they remain long. While they are up trees, orcs go by, also Gollum. At Angle, they debate what is to be done. Frodo feels it is his duty to go straight to Fire Mountain. But Aragorn and Boromir wish to go to Minas Tirith, and if possible, gather force. Frodo sees that that will not help, as Minas Tirith is still a long way from Fire Mountain, and Sauron will only be the more warned. Boromir is secretly planning to use the ring since Gandalf is gone. Okay. Uh... Lothlorien, we know nothing about it. There's still no Galadriel yet, no glimpse of it. Just, they're going to st- stop there for a while, right? So Yana, this, I think, already he's there for a while, so poor Legolas can heal his shoulder, probably, right? Um, we don't know. They remain long. We don't know exactly how long, but it's long enough, uh, presumably, uh, that he could get some physical therapy and stuff. So, um uh, yeah, so Brian, I agree. The impulse seems to be, okay, so what is that thing? That name, Lothlorien, that came floating out before? And we were talking about it, right, when it first came up with the the dream thing? Is there, a, you know, some kind of other fairy, eerie, elf wood thing that's going on here? Maybe, but that doesn't... It doesn't even sound like an adventure in the sense of, um, uh, like, a thing to be overcome by them anymore. It's just a a stop, Right, um, it's just a place where they can uh, take refuge for a while. Um, in in essence, it's the framework, it's the setting for the breaking of the fellowship. Right, that's the thing that he foresees. Um, so the story told from Moria is essentially after Moria, we get the breaking of the Fellowship because Boromir is going to make his move. Boromir's already uh, wanting the ring. Now that Gandalf's gone, he's going to make his move. Right? Uh, So Boromir is trying to get them to Minas Tirith because he wants to make his move for the ring. He wants to use the ring in the war. Um, Frodo's going to leave. So we're going to have the breaking of the Fellowship. Boromir's going to try to take the ring. Frodo is going to run away. Alone. 
Remember, that was also foreseen in this the brief uh, uh, version that he did of Frodo lost in Fangorn. Remember, that's how Fangorn was going to come in. Frodo was going to go off on his own, and he was going to end up in Fangorn alone, and he was going to be captured uh, by the giant tree beard. Um, so that was that was an, an, an older idea that seems to have passed now. Um, uh, though, of course, not entirely, as we know, uh, a vestige of that will remain. Um, but uh, but yes, Yana uh, Lothlorien seems to be relegated to the role that Rivendell and Bjorn's house have in the Hobbit. Right? It might be queer lodgings, but it's lodgings. Right? It's a it's a resting point on their journey. No sense of a greater significance than that. Right? It's not. Um, it's not. Uh, they receive no gifts or special blessings there. There's no Galadriel. There's no passing into the land that time forgot thing going on. There's no, it's uh, it's just a place where they hang out for a while. Um, uh, Kimber points out the trees do merit capitalization, which is tantalizing. Take refuge up trees. It's true. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, but it's interesting, I agree. I hadn't been thinking about that. He capitalizes things so often that I'm not always sure it means an enormous amount, but maybe it does. Maybe it does. Um, okay, so breaking the fellowship, Frodo's gonna leave, and then he, but he's gonna be rejoined with Sam, right? So we're gonna get that in a second. Um, uh, yeah, Brian says the trees seem more important to Lorien than the elves. Yeah, possibly so, right? Uh, the elves, we don't, we're, uh, um, the only thing the elves do is befriend them, right? In other words, give them a place to hang out uh, and enable them to stay there safely and recover or something. Um, yeah, okay. Boromir, so then we get the, the working out in more detail of the breaking of the fellowship. Boromir takes Frodo apart and talks to him, begs to see Ring again. Evil enters into his heart, and he tries to daunt Frodo, and then to take it by force. Frodo is obligated to slip it on to escape him. What does he see, then? Cloud all round him, getting nearer, and many fell voices in air? Really interesting question, isn't it? Frodo, seeing that evil has entered into the company, dare not stay, and does not want to imperil hobbits or others. He flies. Um, so Frodo takes unto himself in a sense, indirectly at least, some of the blame for what happened to Boromir, right? His having the ring there in the Fellowship has brought about the corruption of Boromir. He is concerned that the others will be corrupted as well. Like, what what could happen to Merry and Pippin if they hang... So basically, the ring is radioactive, right? Uh, and it's corrupting everybody else. You know, if I want Merry and Pippin and Sam not to be injured by proximity to the ring, I, I need to take it away, right? It seems to be Frodo's, uh, uh, Frodo's um, ra- rationale there. Okay, he flies. His loss is not discovered for some time because of Boromir's lies. Boromir says he has climbed a tree and will be coming back soon. Uh, like Bilbo in Mirkwood? The hunt eventually fails because Frodo went a long way invisible. The search... Sam is lost. He tries to track Frodo and comes on Gollum. He follows Gollum, and Gollum leads him to Frodo. That's fascinating. Um, that's really interesting. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, Brandon, great observation. Easy to, in everything else going on, easy to overlook that. Um, Boromir lives, right? That's kind of a big deal, right? Boromir doesn't die. Um, uh, it's, uh, this is, um, that's, that's a real, that's a super big deal. Um, what's going to happen to Boromir? What is Boromir's future? I don't know, right? Um, and Nancy, exactly as you point out, not only does he live, but he doesn't repent and he goes around causing problems. He's lying to folks, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, evil Boromir. Exactly, Nadia. Uh, we get uh, we get to, it looks like we're going to have to live with a corrupted Boromir. Um, yeah, yeah. Frodo hears following feet and flies, but Sam comes up too, to his surprise. The two are, are too much for Gollum. Gollum is daunted by Frodo, who has a power over him as ring-bearer. But use of ring proves bad, since it re-establishes power of ring over Frodo after his cure. At end, he cannot willingly part with it. Gollum pleads for forgiveness and feigns reform. They make him lead them through the dead marshes, green faces in the pools, Lithlad, plain of ash, the searching eye of Barad-dûr, a single light in a high window. Not a flaming eyeball, of course. Um, okay, so notice there, just to start with the simplest thing there, notice how the the thing that details are coming into focus, right? Um, of the path to Mordor. Uh, so Lothlorien, breaking of the fellowship, escaping, Gollum catches him, Sam catches Gollum at the same time, then Dead Marsh's Plain of Ash, Searching Eye of Barad-dûr, right? Um, remember, Tolkien thought he was halfway done with the story when he got to Rivendell. And honestly, from this outline, it sounds like that's a fair estimate, right? Um, it's only taken a couple chapters to do the Ringo South, go through Holland, go through uh, Moria, two chapters in Moria, right? Um, ending with the Bridge of Casa Doom. Then we get the breaking of the fellowship. Then we get the short trip from there to Mordor, right? Encounter with Gollum. Um, we could totally wrap this up in two books, right? Clearly, clearly, we're still on pace for that. Um, yeah, <laughs> Stephen points out that although Balrogs obviously did not have wings, Frodo apparently does. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yana, that is interesting to think of Boromir as like a proto Grima. Right, almost right. I mean, he's not exactly a counselor figure, but uh, but yeah, like a a, a twisted and corrupted uh, man. Right, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Um, and by the way, I love um, I love this scene. Right, we don't get this scene in the books, but this is another thing that I kind—I almost wish that we did get. Uh, I, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, I wouldn't trade the scene where Sam catches up with Frodo and the two of them leave together. I wouldn't trade that for this scene, so I'm fine with it. Um, but I love this idea of Frodo being alone, realizing he's being pursued, trying to escape from Gollum. Gollum comes up and catches him, and it looks like, you know, Frodo's in for it. But then Sam comes up behind him uh, and, uh, and, and, and come, you know, having followed 
followed Gollum, tracked Gollum, who was tracking Frodo. I kind of like that. Um, again, I wouldn't trade the, uh, the the scene at the shores of Parth Gollum for it, but um, but I still kind of like it. Um, uh, okay. Um, but the business with the ring, right? The business with the ring is really cool. So first of all, notice the first crucial word that we get. The first crucial word is daunted. And that's Tolkien. It seems to be Tolkien's emphasis there. Gollum is daunted by Frodo. And you notice the significance of that word? Because we just got it. Evil enters into his heart and he tries to daunt Frodo and then to take it by force. Uh, so Boromir has just tried to daunt Frodo to exert his will to to compel Frodo to follow his his Boromir's will um, by force of will, right? Um, I'm going to try to intimidate you into doing what I want you to do. That's what Boromir has just done to Frodo. Frodo then immediately turns and does that same thing to Gollum, and that seems to be a red flag, right? Um. His choice to do that, Frodo's choice to do that, is a mistake. How can Frodo daunt Gollum? Frodo has a power over him as ring bearer. Um, and yeah, this is really, really fascinating, right? Um, notice the na- what we learn about the nature of the ring, and the this is a this moment is a bigger moment in Tolkien's mind the first time through than it sounds like it is in the published text, right? Um, it's not necessarily that this is the point of no return for Frodo, but it's pretty strong. Use of Ring proves bad since it reestablishes power of Ring over Frodo after his cure. At end, he cannot willingly part with it. So had Frodo not done this, had he not used the ring in this way? By using the... Because he's using the power of the ring, right? Uh, just by setting out to daunt Gollum, using the ring as a weapon, essentially, he is using the ring, right? That's that's the phrase he... But use of ring, right? He's using the ring to daunt Gollum, and therefore he himself, Frodo, falls under the power of the ring. And because he did that, he will not be able to willingly part with it. Frodo fails at the cracks of doom because of this moment, because he had, he used the ring to daunt Gollum. That's really interesting. Um, very cool. Kate uh, Neville is just saying that she uh, she just looked up daunt in the OED, uh, and uh, the Middle English word uh, uh, fr- uh, 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 daunt comes from the Latin for tame, the taming of Smeagol. Uh, so the, the title of that chapter, The Taming of Smeagol, contains the concept of daunting that we see in this outline. That is awesome, Kate! Oh, man, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's really neat. Because um, uh, you know that Tolkien is thinking of that. You know that Tolkien is thinking of the word daunt when he uses the taming of Smeagol in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the chapter title, right? Um, that is so cool. Oh, man. Um, that is that is the coolest thing of the day, Kate. Holy cow. Um, 
Yeah. Now, John, I agree. John says that the the idea of the power of the ring reestablishing a hold over Frodo now, only after he uses it to daunt Gollum, suggests the ring itself isn't growing or directly influencing Frodo on a consistent basis, like it will later on come to do. Um, I agree. And that does, I agree with your, your suggestion there, draw your conclusion there that the ring is not yet as powerful as it will later on become. Yes, that sense of the continual um, influence over him now, we, we got an implication of that, John, right? With the whole, like, uh, the corruption of the ring, like it's already done in Boromir, could do in everybody else. So that sense of, like, the ring is radioactive and it's going to corrupt people, you know, morally radioactive, right? It's going to corrupt people the longer they stay around it. That concept is still there, not yet applied to Frodo himself, uh, clearly. Um, so th- the idea is there, but I agree with you. The emphasis here is that uh, it's not a... Frodo is gradually coming more and more under the power of the ring uh, concept. It's a he wasn't under the power of the ring but now he is, right? Because he's crossed this line. Um, And that is very different. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Tom says it's interesting that Boromir's example provides Frodo with both his daunting of Gollum <clears throat> and his pity for him, having finally seen what the ring can really do to people. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. Um, yes, so he pities Gollum because he sees what the ring did to Boromir, right? And thinking, of course, how much time, you know, how long Gollum spent with that radioactive thing, right, um, informs his pity of Gollum. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It is really interesting how it how it does go both ways there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James Leback asks, what cure is he talking about? Um, since it reestablishes power of ring over Frodo after his cure. Great question, James. I wasn't even thinking about that. Well, what can it be referring to? It's got to be referring to his cure in Rivendell, right? It's the only time he's been needing curing, right? Is from his wound and the, uh, you know, sort of magical slash spiritual consequences thereof, right? Um, before. It's got to be his curing in Rivendell. Um, I can't think of anything else it could be referring to. But this tells us something really interesting about that, right? Um, at his hewing in Rivendell, he, the power of the ring over him is broken? Didn't see that coming. Didn't see that at the time, right? So Frodo is, because Frodo's already coming under the influence of the ring. We see that in chapter two when he can't chuck it in the fire, right? Um, but now Tolkien is suggesting that when Elrond cured him, and yes, that word stays in the Elrond has cured you, Gandalf says, when Frodo wakes up. Um, it has to be that. Um, now we learn, and I don't think we had reason to suspect early on, that the power of the ring over Frodo was broken by Elrond at that time. But now he's gone and put his foot in it. 
right? Fascinating. Okay. Um, Kate, you're right. Oh, man, Kate, you're on fire tonight. Kate, Neville just pointed out that was the last time he's used it. He hasn't put on the ring since Weathertop until he escapes from Boromir. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Man. That's awesome. That's, that's, that is this concept of Elrond curing him of, uh, the power of the ring over him, that's kind of blowing my mind right now, <laughs> actually. Uh, thanks, James, for pointing it out. I, I was I was skipping right over that. I was so focused on the, uh, in the end, he cannot willingly part with it. You know, this moment as being uh, that point of no return for Frodo that I was, I was totally overlooking that. All right. Um, I'm going to give up the fight soon. I'll stop before the Sam stuff. The Gap of Gorgoroth, not far from Fire Mountain. Oh, by the way, I had never even planned to get all the way through this chapter. I knew that was not happening. I was trying to get through the, the Cracks of Doom stuff, so we'll get pretty close. The Gap of Gorgoroth, not far from Fire Mountain. There are orc guard towers on either side of Gorgoroth. They see a host of evil led by Black Riders. Gollum betrays Frodo. He is beaten off, but escapes shrieking to the Black Riders. The Black Riders now have taken form of demonic eagles and fly before host, or take eagle-like vulture birds as steeds. Um, uh, I think that's fascinating that they're not going to actually, you know, the, 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 the consideration that the Nazgul actually change form into flying creatures, into demonic eagles. I love the demonic eagles. Uh, uh, you know, because the, the, the real eagles are kind of angelic eagles, right? Um, and so we're going to have demonic eagles to oppose against the angelic eagles. Um, uh, exactly. They're like mocking Manway's heralds, Brandon. It works. I like it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Nancy, I also am intrigued by the idea of them actually just transforming themselves, uh, into, uh, into demon eagle form. Um, uh, so, Okay. Um, rumor of... Okay, sorry. Frodo toils up mountain to find crack. Rumor of battle had already reached Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. That is why the host of Mordor was riding out. While Frodo is toiling up mountain, he looks back and sees battle gathering. He hears faint sound of, sound of horns in the hills. A great dust where the horsemen are coming. Thunder from Barad-dûr and a black storm comes up on an east wind. Frodo wonders what is happening, but has no hope that he himself can be saved. The ringwraiths swoop back. They have heard Gollum's cries. Okay. Notice how much simpler this is. Remember, one book, right? We've got Bag End to Rivendell, Rivendell to Mount Doom, right? And it would work. Um, everything is simpler. One pass into Mordor, guarded by orc towers, right? But we're going to make it through there somehow. Um, the, uh, 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 there's going to be a battle, but the battle seems to be, uh, the battle seems to be, um, one single conflict, right? 
um, obviously the the whole like the way that the War of the Ring plays out, you know, we're we're still very very far from that. Um, he's going into Mordor. There's one path into Mordor. He's going into Mordor. There's a battle going on. Um, I have no idea what the horsemen are. Uh, I think my theory is that those are good guys um, because of the sound of horns in the hills. So he's going to hear the sound of horns in the hills and a great dust where the horsemen are coming. So the Black Riders are leading uh, an evil army out of Mordor, right? We got that Black Riders now of... uh, No, sorry, uh, Erogion, right? A host of evil led by Black Riders, right? So we've got the army of Mordor, and then we've got um, the... uh, uh, the good guy. I mean, if there's a battle, there have to be the good guys there, right? Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, the 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 idea that the battle, whatever the battle is, exactly, and and exactly whoever is fighting in it, is going to have a climactic moment where horsemen come in out of nowhere after you hear horns in the hills. That's already there, right? That kind of vague but mythic concept is already. It's like it's like the one thing we know about the battle is that uh, so, so whoever is opposing the armies of Sauron are going to be assisted by horsemen that come riding in after uh, 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 sounding horns in the hills, uh, and it's going to be dramatic. That's all we know, right? Um, okay. Um, Thunder from Barad-dûr and a black storm comes up uh, on an east wind. So yeah, I, and I agree with you. You know, all those of you who are saying this is a precursor of the ride of the Rohirrim, definitely. But yet not right. Like, don't be thinking about Rohan because we're not there. We've had Rohan and we've had the Rohirrim, and they are the horse lords. So it is possible that he is in fact thinking of the Rohirrim already. But the details are, seem to be sufficiently vague. Does he have the idea that it's 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 the Andorians? who are fighting against him and that the horse lords are going to come sweeping in from the hills. That seems quite possible, right? But honestly, this sounds to me less like the Battle of Pelennor Field than it sounds like the Battle of Celebrant, right? When the forces of Gondor were uh, almost destroyed and then Aeorl the Young comes sweeping down uh, and vanquishes the enemy. That's what it sounds like to me, actually. Um, but in any case, it's the... Um, uh, it's the... It's the, the the idea that the Rohirrim, whatever else happens, the Rohirrim are going to have to have horns, right? Uh, because um, the uh, the horns blowing in the hills and the horsemen arrival, like that's the that's the concept, right? That's the whole battle construction, um, and I love it. Okay, so G- Gollum's betrayal is a thing, right? But the betrayal is simply betrayal to the Nazgul. So Gollum betrays them. Gollum betrays Frodo means he tries to take the ring. It has to be, right? Um, So he just attempts to seize the ring. You can tell because he's beaten off. So presumably that's what he's... He's physically attacked Frodo and attempted to seize the ring. That's what betrayal means uh, in this context. And after he gets beaten off, he runs to the Black Riders, to betray Frodo to them, right? Um, and they hear him, so they turn away from the battle because they've heard Gollum's cries. This is all really vague, and, like, clearly he's not thinking how the geography is going to work, or, like, the, you know, he's thinking conceptually. Remember, 
he doesn't start with maps. He talks about starting with maps, but he doesn't start with maps. He starts with story concepts, and the concept he has is of Gollum betraying Frodo and of the Nazgul learning at the last second, disengaging from the battle because they've learned that the ring is, at the last minute, they've learned that the ring is inside Mordor and headed to the cracks of doom. And so they, and so he's thinking, his first impulse is Gollum is the medium there. Gollum is the uh, uh, the instrument that makes that happen. Orodruin, written above Mount Doom, has three great fissures, north, west, south, changed to west, south, and east, in its sides. They are very deep, and at an unguessable depth, a glow of fire is seen. So the cracks of doom are originally cracks, literal cracks in the sides of the mountain. So there are these clefts in the sides of the mountain with fire down at the bottom, right? Um, and so you literally chuck the ring into the crack of doom, right? Uh, and you can tell that they're cracks of doom because they are cracks in the side of Mount Doom. Okay, right. That seems tolerably clear. Um... Okay, so where else are we going? Uh, okay, every now and again, fire rolls out of Mountain's heart down the terrific channels, the cracks. The mountain towers above Frodo. He comes to a flat place on the mountainside where the fissure is full of fire, Sauron's well of fire. The vultures are coming. He cannot notice the... Ca- unconsciously... Consciously, he's imitated the phrasing. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming, except this time it's the vultures are coming, right? The vultures are coming. He cannot throw the ring in. The vultures are coming. All goes dark in his eyes, and he falls to his knees. At that moment, Gollum comes up and wrestles with him and takes ring. Frodo falls flat. Okay. Um, I agree, Brandon. Mount Doom is a much better name than Fire Mountain, which is what it was just referred to as before. Um, Okay, so... Uh, he cannot throw the ring in. Gollum comes up and takes it from him, and that's the end of Frodo's job. Right? Frodo falls flat on his face, and that's the end of Frodo. Frodo's done his job. Right? He's gotten the ring there, can't throw it in. He fails, ultimately, in his task. Um, and... But now we still have to get the ring into the crack of doom. Here, perhaps, Sam's co- Sam comes up, beats off a vulture, and hurls himself and Gollum into the gulf. Function for Sam. Is he to die? He said, there is something I have to do before I die, change to before the end. Um, my favorite thing about Tolkien as a writer... This is a pretty big statement, right? My favorite thing about Tolkien as a writer is his own relationship with his story. How we see him, and we see him doing this in his letters, this is one of my favorite examples that I've ever seen of Tolkien doing this, right? Um, When he quotes his own text, and is he's not inventing, he's interpreting, he's discovering, right? Sam said that. Sam said there is something I have to do before the end before he left the show. That's already been written. But Tolkien doesn't know what. He doesn't know what that means. Right? And so in this moment, as he's writing this outline, here's Tolkien saying, is that what Sam was talking about? Sam did say, there's something I have to do before the end. Maybe this is what it is. Maybe what Sam had to do was die. So Sam sacrifices himself. Um, So Sam is going to beat off a Nazgul, first of all. I mean, 
come on, right? Uh, he's going to beat off a vulture and hurl himself and Gollum into the gulf. So right before, the Nazgul are there, physically there at the crack of doom. And Sam is going to grapple with Gollum and both of them are going to fall in. So Sam is going to sacrifice himself. Unbelievable. That is incredible, right? I mean, oh, how... Oh, boy, James. Man, that would have been so sad, wouldn't it? Um, and yes, Kimber points out how interesting is it at the same time that he's echoing the eagles are coming, the eagles are, are coming. Um, at the climax of the battle, he has Frodo knocked unconscious, just like Bilbo was knocked unconscious in the Battle of Five Armies. Kimber, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, that's really, that's really, that's really cool. It's really interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I agree. Um, it would have been super sad to see Sam die, but this is an end worthy of Sam. I agree. I think that's that. I I feel exactly the same way about that. Um, I I would have cried bitter tears, Stephen, had this happened to 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 Sam. But it would have been a death worthy of Sam. Um, this would work. This would work really really well. Oh my goodness. Oh, um, man. Um, yeah. Yeah, and John, it does, it builds on the sacrifice theme that we see starting with Gandalf. And John, doesn't that... Good, Cecilia was thinking the same thing, the parallel to Gandalf sacrificing himself in Moria. Uh, Cecilia, yeah, exactly. Just the, and, and, But notice, um, Christopher Tolkien's best guess based on the evidence is that this outline is written right now. Right after he's written The Bridge of Khazad Doom, he writes this outline, right? Um so it's not just that this is recalling the Bridge of Khazad-dûm incident from way back then. In Tolkien's invention, these two events happen next to each other, right? He comes up with the events at the Cracks of Doom immediately after writing the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, right? Um, so in that sense, I think we see that we already we already did see John, as you were suggesting the increasing tendency towards sacrifice in Gandalf, right? Um, at, uh, uh, on, on the bridge, right? As he was revising that. And now we see that taking its next step forward in, uh, in, in, in Sam here. Um, there is a sense, of course, in which I think Tolkien's first impulse was right. That is to say, when, um... The answer to the question, what was it that Sam felt he had to do before the end, right? The answer to that question is more cleanly and clearly answered by the version where he dies than it is in the published text, right? It's not that there isn't an answer to that question in the published text. The, the role that he has to play is still uh, is still an important one, and it still is you know it's 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 there and it's really good, um, but it's not the same kind of like there is a task I must perform, um, if that if the task is I've got to sacrifice myself so that the ring is thrown into the fire, that's a cle- a clearer more definite, more well-defined answer to the question of what is Sam's role? Why, um, what was the thing he felt he had to do? Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Sarah, that the the eucatastrophe of Sam's waking in the field of Cormallon uh, yields better tears. Uh, I I I I agree. I agree. I'm not, I'm not saying I wish he died. Um, uh, and yet, uh, Brianna is arguing against it too. That she she doesn't like it. Um, uh, Brianna says uh, Sam becoming the destroyer of the ring would be a hero's death. But in the final version, Sam uh, uh, only beats the ring by refusing it and bearing Frodo instead of bearing the ring. Uh, here, it's like Sam didn't rise above the ring. Um, you know, but that's all hindsight. Um, I agree. We don't get the same thing. And now notice. He's going to. It's right after this that he speculates about Sam and the ring. The whole idea of Sam taking the ring, uh, you know, bearing the ring at all temporarily, uh, is an idea that comes in immediately after this paragraph, right? So, Brianna, that's exactly where Tolkien's mind goes right away after this. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. And Brian, I agree with you. Brian says that he he likes the fact that Frodo's ultimate inability to overcome the ring and destroy it is present from the very beginning. Yes, that's part of the fundamental concept of the ring itself and of Frodo and his quest itself. Right. It's it's not um, it's not it's not possible uh, for him to do it. That that was never going to happen. Frodo was never going to be able to throw the ring into the fire. That that in any case is clear from the beginning. Notice, Brian, of course, it's foreshadowed in chapter two, right? When he can't cast it into his fireplace, right? Hobbits who can't cast rings into bitty fireplaces in their parlor are unlikely to be able to cast it into the crack of doom, right? So the foreshadowing of that moment is clear from the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay, let's stop there. I did have, I had only two more. I got to go through all but two of my slides. Um, uh, Sam's uh, taking of the ring uh, and uh, and what was going on with Sam. That was uh, the next bit. We'll do that. We'll do the rest of the outline and do continue the reading. I do hope to get past this chapter and be less than a full class behind. But I mean, what could I have skipped from there, right? I mean, I, again, I was, when I was making, you know, deciding on my slides for this week, I'm like, no, every sentence of this chapter we have to talk about. Holy cow. Um, uh, anyway, thanks very much, everybody. And don't forget, next week, so we're going to be starting at 10 p.m. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the webinar sessions uh, so that it, it will remind you that that change is made and, and everything. So I apologize uh, for that as a change in my family schedule. So I, I'm, I'm not going to be quite available just quite as early, but I will be, should be able to uh, be in my 10. So thanks very much, everybody. Uh, and I will see you next week, slightly later. And uh, we will continue on with Sam and the ring bearer. And oh, by the way, what's everybody else going to be doing after Frodo leaves them, right? We should probably think about that too. So thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.